live online and on your mobile. This, this is DCUFM News. Hi everyone and welcome back to Newswire. I'm Anya Boyle and I'm joined today by Aoife O'Brien and Kira O'Loughlin. On today's show, we will be talking about the Media Production Society's 24-hour broadcast, a terrorist attack that was staged in DCU, and we will be talking to Dermot Thorny, an assistant professor in the School of Law and Government. He spearheaded students' proposals to a recent plan submitted by the government to tackle climate change. Finally, we will be having a discussion on this. But first, we have our hourly news bulletin. Good afternoon, it's six o'clock and I'm Kira O'Loughlin. NASA has successfully landed on Mars. The inside lander survived the journey. It slammed through the Martian atmosphere to the red planet and managed to touch down successfully on its surface. Now it will bury beneath the surface looking to understand the red planet's interior. A status orange weather warning has been issued for six counties as Storm Diana hits Ireland. The warning applies to counties Cork, Kerry, Waterford, Wexford, Galway and Clare and is due to come into effect at tomorrow morning from 6am. US prosecutors say President Donald Trump's former campaign chairman Paul Manafort breached his plea deal by lying to federal investigators in 2016. Mr Manafort said that he disagreed with special counsel Robert Mueller's assertion that he had lied. Both sides agreed the court should sentence him for his crimes. Without a pardon, the 69-year-old Mr Manafort could spend the rest of his life in prison. Mr Mueller is expected to file a report in the coming months on the findings of the 18-month probe into Russia's election meddling and possible collision with the Trump campaign. Europe's top court has ruled Britain can reverse its decision to leave the European Union. Supporters of membership hope this could have paved the way to a second referendum and ultimately stop Brexit. Lawyers for a group of Scottish politicians want the European Court of Justice to interpret whether Britain can revoke Brexit without agreement of the other 27 states. And finally, Ariana Grande released a Mean Girls-inspired video today as a teaser for her music video, Thank You Next. The single is now the longest-running Hot 100 number 1 by a female artist this year. A date for the video has not yet been released. That's all the news for now. Up next is weather and sport. Rain has currently stalled but will continue from 9pm this evening onwards. Gale forces are expected to reach 32 kilometres per hour tonight. Temperatures currently measure 9 degrees Celsius. That's all for now. Remember you can keep up to date with us on Facebook and Twitter at DCU MPS News. DCU's Media Production Society will be broadcasting for 24 hours this Friday in aid of Avine's Pink Tie. 150 members of the society will stay up broadcasting for 24 hours, aiming to raise €6,000 for the charity. I am joined today by Killian Wheelie Mullally, Events Coordinator for the Society. Thanks for joining us today, Killian. No problem, Kira. How are you? So, what is this event and when did it start? The broadcast? Yeah. So, the broadcast has been running for, I think, eight or nine years now. I'm not too sure. And basically, in the Henry Gatlin building on DCU campus, we live stream from the TV studio for 24 hours straight. It's always been the first weekend of December and it starts at 9 o'clock on the Friday night and goes straight through until 9 o'clock the Saturday night. And it's always been an aid charity. Okay, and who decides what charity it is? Does it change every year or how's that decided? So how it's done is there's currently 14 members on the committee and every year, well this year is different because they're, uh, it's the biggest the committee has ever been, but usually, uh, usually there's 13 
on the committee, including the first direct, who was elected further into the year. And basically what happens is the 12, well, now 12, that is now 13 uh, positions that are there from the start, from the first week, everyone is said to think of charity, why they want to do it, like something, most of the time it is something that's closely associated to somebody on the charity or on the committee. And then uh, they're told to pitch it, so why they think it deserves this much um, attention and to be uh, the, the main charity of the broadcast. And that's how it comes about. Yeah. Okay, cool. And like, how much success had it has it had before? Because I mean, there's been so much covered coverage in the press of it already. Um, I think through social media, it has gained a lot more attention because it's a more accessible to like anyone in their home. But uh, two years ago, they uh, were raising funds for the people from the Fairy Trust, which was a homelessness charity, and that ra- that year they raised fifteen thousand euro. And last year, it was in, a- uh, in aid of So Sad, a mental health charity. And they raised 10,000 last year, so it's great. And just if you can explain to our listeners, like, what exactly do you mean by broadcasting? It's TV, isn't it? It's TV. So uh, the Media Production Society is a society that is mainly, um, uh, mainly, it's not just for, but it's mainly run by students who either study journalism, communications, uh, multimedia, or uh, do media through joint honours. And that is usually because they know how to run the equipment and do things like the TV studio and the radio studio on campus. What exactly are you broadcasting? Broadcasting. So everybody, it's a huge commitment. So, well, not a huge commitment, but everybody is asked, like there's an opportunity to uh, propose a show and a lot of people do. And then the shows are selected down to what will work, what will work on the night. Some shows are pre-recorded and then streamed while like for their time and then others are recorded live on in the studio and then it's all streamed for 24 hours so i think that brings uh there's each show is half an hour so it brings up to 48 shows and then 48 48 shows so it's a lot it, the event it's between 200 and 150 students it's crazy it's manic but it's great to see so many people get involved another thing like y- if you don't think you might like to be in a tv show or present a show or something like that there's opportunities to get involved like with uh, uh, on the cameras in the studio and like working the desk and things like that, being a vision mixer, so it's great. It's very symbiotic because it gives the students who have all these media skills the opportunity to show that they know how to use these skills and do it for a great cause. It's like it's a, it's a very great idea, in my opinion. Great. Um, I just wanted to ask a little bit about um, kind of you talked about there all the organising that goes into it, but there are other stuff that happens beforehand, like um. I saw an ad on Facebook and there's all around DC there's kind of some fundraising events and stuff go like that going on. Oh yeah, absolutely. So the main purpose of the broadcast is it is an aid of charity and it does two things. It raises funds for the char- the chosen charity, which is the main goal, but then it's also to promote the charity. So like me myself last year, I would have never actually heard of So Sad, which is a charity that does a lot of great things, but through the broadcast I actually learned a lot about it and what they do. So it's all to do with that and it's it's just kind of like basically giving it all to this charity for the weeks running up to it and helping them as much as they can because obviously charities aren't government funded and they do really need it. Great. And just lastly, how do people watch it and when it, when does it take place? So you can watch it in two ways. You can go onto YouTube and search DCU MPS and you can watch it live from there. Or if you go onto the website www.dcu-mps.com, you can watch it on our website. And if you, it's a bit tricky because if you watch it on YouTube, you won't have a direct link to donate. But then if you watch it on the website, you can donate. 
Okay, great. So uh, that's Killian Media Mulally talking about the Media Production Society's event that takes place this Friday, all in aid of Avian's Pink Tie. Thank you so much for joining us today, Killian. Uh, we're going to take a quick ad break now, but make sure to stay tuned to hear about a terrorist attack that was staged in DCU last week. And we will also be talking to Dermot Torney, an assistant professor in the School of Law and Government. On Friday 16th November, DCU students were issued with an email at approximately 2 o'clock stating that normal activities on the DCU Glasnevin campus would be disrupted. The reason for this email being issued was that a simulated terrorist attack would be taking place on the Glasnevin campus. The attack was a real-time exercise, with the Garda Control Centre receiving a 999 call about a serious road traffic collision on the DCU campus. A number of minutes later, a number of people exited the car and began shooting and attacking bystanders. The armed emergency response unit then arrived on the scene and shot dead one of the attackers. Two of his accomplices then ran into the building and proceeded to take a number of hostages before shooting several more students. A realistic standoff then ensued between the attackers and the emergency response unit, along with the armed support unit. They utilised a remote controlled vehicle to safely observe the situation and communicated with the terrorists from the room that they were in. Within the space of 10 minutes, a smoke grenade was thrown and the hostages were safely released. The two armed men were shot dead during the encounter and then carried out of the building on stretchers. Sergeant Liam Garrity from the Garda Press Office said that the purpose of this exercise was to test how their communications work in real-life scenarios. The attack drew on the experiences of the 1999 Columbine High School shooting in Colorado, the Sandy Hook school shooting of 2012 in Connecticut, and the Beda clan and related terrorist attacks in Paris in 2015. Over 50 people from external agencies, such as first responders, were involved in the simulation, which was led by the Gardi and partially organised by DCU's Chief Operations Officer, Doc- er, Dr. Declan Rafferty. The exercise was based on 18 months training, starting with desktop scenarios and building gradually on the sort of large-scale interagency joint exercise and staged with the help of DCU. Despite there never having been an event in Ireland comparable to the terrorist outrages in Europe or mass shootings in the US, the Guardi feel that they have a high degree of experience in this matter. Here's a brief clip from the staged attack and I interviewed Dr. Declan Rafferty, DCU's Chief Operations Officer. Declan, would you be able to tell me a little bit about why this terrorist, um, t- fake terrorist attack was staged in DCU? So it was a major training exercise for the emergency services, what they termed Operation Barracuda. Uh, we have a long relationship with the emergency services. We have a master's in emergency management that started over 11 years ago. So a lot of the graduates of that course are now in senior positions in the emergency service. Mm-hmm. So there's very good links and very good working relationship with all the emergency services. So we were asked, would we consider facilitating a major exercise all the emergency services? So we welcome the opportunity to help them out. They're, they're good to us operationally mm-hmm. as well as academically and everything else. So it feeds into what we do operationally in education. So why was DCU chosen as a prime location to stage I'm this? I'm not sure, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I suspect they were looking for a, a semi-public place that was a, a real living uh, building or campus so that they could practice the challenges that a, a complex 
uh, built environment with posing with many students and public members in attendance if, the, if, if an actual event ever did happen. So they tried to make it as real as possible. So what kind of groups were involved in running this operation? So mainly it was the security team of the estates that were doing the liaison with the Gardaí as the lead agency for all the other emergency services, so the ambulance, the HSE, Dublin Fire Brigade, the Army, um, were all involved, so all the ma major emergency services, and just allowed us to close off a section of the campus so that mm -hmm. they could carry out the, the, the exercise safely. Um, and we also used the exercise as an opportunity to test in a, it's called a desktop environment, to test our emergency planning. Mm -hmm. um, so we used it ourselves to, to test our own systems. So did the operation, was it considered a success in the end? My understanding is that the emergency service are very satisfied with, with the operation. The exercise went very well. They learned a lot from it and that's the whole idea of these exercises, to fine tune their plans, how they respond, how they coordinate the response across many agencies. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think there's a further debriefing due shortly, but my understanding is they were very happy the way it went. They tried to recreate exact conditions on, on a dark Friday winter's mm -hmm. night with the resources that would be normally available uh, and put a major terrorist incident mm -hmm. on the ground and see how they reacted. And did it cause any kind of disruptions to life in DCU or is that why it was chosen to be a Friday because a lot the of people wouldn't be on campus? The request from emergency services was for a Friday. Yeah. They wanted to recre recreate a Friday evening and the resources they might have available so we were happy to facilitate. Thankfully it's one of the quieter evenings on campus. Mm -hmm. So it didn't seem to cause too much disruption because we, we did close effectively two buildings in a section of the campus. But after six o'clock in the evening, vast majority of staff and students are, are gone home for yeah. the weekend. So there wasn't much disruption mm -hmm. and the event was over and done by half past nine that night, back to normal business for open day again on Saturday morning. Mm. <laughs> so does DCU have any sort of protocol in place to deal with these kind of situations, say it would ever occur? So DCU does have a major emergency plan in mm -hmm. place to deal with um, major emergencies yeah. if they were ever to take place. So that's what we tested here up in the Albert College. We took live feeds from the security team on the ground as the incident unfur unfurled and we tested our own systems and how we would manage that. So it was a useful exercise for ourselves as well. Mm -hmm. Were you involved in any of the kind of... Um like a live action no I wasn't, I wasn't involved thankfully in any of the live action we, we facilitated it I chaired the emergency management team so we were doing our own desktop practice up here mm. using that uh, some of the security team were more heavily involved yeah. in, the, in the live action as they would in such an instant you'd want the local mm -hmm. security team providing information and advice to the guardian emergency mm -hmm. services on where buildings are what their entrances are what's in the buildings so they they were front and centre in this exercise mm -hmm. And are they based on campus all the time? Or? So the 24-7 DC security based on all our campuses. Mm -hmm. So And the central control room is here on the, in the Glass M campus on the multi-story car park. So that is very real day to day. Yeah. So it was a useful exercise for them to mm -hmm. practice to how to respond to such, let's put it this way, such a challenging event. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, it probably yeah. never happened, hopefully. This would be like the extreme end of this the spectrum? Absolute extreme yeah. end where you had three terrorists armed with automatic weapons <laughs> marauding is the phrase they mm -hmm. use to campus so thankfully it, it hopefully is only ever an exercise so what kind of day-to-day -day exercises would you have to deal with that wouldn't be like on this kind of scale we we, we go to a various various scenarios like the major risks for us on a campus like this is actually severe weather mm -hmm. as we're kind of kind of experiencing today and tomorrow yeah. as se severe winds pass through heavy snowfalls as we had uh, earlier this year, mm -hmm. they are the more significant risks that we're yeah. likely to, to impact. We did have a power outage uh, program warning earlier in the year as well, so they are the more likely events, thankfully, that mm -hmm. we've got to deal with in Ireland. 
we're not in major earthquake zones, no. volcanoes, or likely tsunamis that the risks that you will see happen in the other part of the world, thankfully, don't tend to happen here. We're not in a hurricane zone, mm -hmm. so those are rare, if ever, events. So we focus on the primary risks and how we would respond to those. Mm -hmm. Students in DCU's Climate Change Policy, Media and Society Master's Programme have responded to the government's consultation document on Ireland's National Energy and Climate Plan 2021-2030. Under EU regulations, all Member States must submit a draft National Energy and Climate Plan to the European Commission by the 31st of December 2018. The plan that Ireland submits must contain detailed policy measures demonstrating that Ireland is doing its part to meet EU energy and climate targets. Assistant Professor in the School of Law and Government DCU, Dear Maturney, spearheaded the DCU students' proposals in the government plan. Among the submission from DCU students to the government were submissions from other stakeholders such as lobby groups and members of the public. The process of preparing the submission involved collaboration among the master's students and the academic staff. Students were, students were allocated a theme and questions to research. They then participated in a workshop in which the various themes were discussed and responses were developed into seven pressing questions that they wished to address in the submission. Five students took part in the, pub, in the process, each addressing and researching two to three pressing questions outlined within the government's consultation document and coming up with solutions. A consensus was adopted among the group that Ireland should consider another method of benchmarking economic output other than gross domestic product, which measures the value of goods or services produced in Ireland during a period of time. They said that Ireland should use the genuine progress indicator on top of that of GDP, as alone GDP does not reflect energy efficiency standards. GPI accurately reflects energy efficiency standards by deducting harmful pollution, such as the burning of fossil fuels from GDP. Brief kind of overview about what the submission says on behalf of the DCU students involved. So on behalf of the DCU students that were involved, the submission makes um, several main points, I'd say. Um, so it was, I think, 21 questions or 20 questions in the consultation. Uh, we just picked 10 because a lot of them were pretty technical and just um, weren't that relevant for our study. Um, but uh, for example, if you look at the question um, concerning the renewable energy share of Ireland that should uh, be reached in our opinion, um, we uh, for example said okay that should be for example 50% at least by 2030 and aiming for 90% by 2040. Um, and um, we also said um, for example that they should I mean, a lot of things were already said by the Citizens' Assembly, really, so in, in, a, lot of, in a lot of points we just kind of repeated that and said, okay, you should actually um, follow, those, uh, follow those recommendations and put, for example, climate change at the heart of any policy that you, for example, design, um, as opposed to, for example, um, economic growth or other, other factors. Um, so it was a plurality of things, but um, I think we, uh, the main message we got across is the, uh, the urgency of the topic, um, which is right now not really being addressed by the Irish government. And do you think that the government will take on board the um, suggestions you made in the submission? And how many other people are kind of making submissions to the government on, on this topic? Regarding other people making submissions, I can't, I, I don't know anything about that. Probably a lot of groups will. Um, I guess not so many from the public because the uh, um, the issue that we face is that um, the, uh, the deadline was rather tight. We didn't have a lot of time. 
Um, so even though we got up, uh, we came up with a with a submission that we kind of were satisfied with. I think a lot of other um, civil society groups, for example, didn't really have the time. Maybe they also didn't know that. I don't know if you like. Is anyone really really noticed that you know like um, the uh, the government asked for submissions anyway? I think a lot of groups that might also got involved were um, probably private groups, um, maybe lobby groups. I don't know. I just I, I just speculate here, um, and I. Government will certainly consider some of the points, but to be honest, I don't think that they will implement it because the discrepancy between what the government is doing right now and what has to be done, in our opinion, is really, really big. Um, of course, I hope for them to adopt everything that we said, um, but uh, I, I, I just hope for that they will kind of um, consider some things and we will certainly try to keep up the pressure. So there's a second round in January, I think. Um, where they always um, again ask the uh, ask the uh, yeah, citizens and um, certain groups. So we'll try to to use this as a um, chance to kind of keep up the pressure. So I understand that it's kind of a collaborative process between staff and students. So could you take me through the kind of ways that you decided what to research on and what maybe wasn't more yeah. relevant? So um, the first step was basically um, our professor approached us and um, just asked who would be interested and we were I think four or five students who were interested taking play, taking part. Um, since there were so many questions and so little time, uh, the professor took it in his hands to kind of decide which questions we will address. Um, so I think if we hadn't been satisfied with what he chose, we would have said that, but it was fine for us. Um, and then he allocated questions to respective students. Um, he changed it a little bit. He also made clear that we can, of course, uh, we can feel free to swap the questions, you know. And then basically every student um, kind of researched two to three questions, um, came up with some solutions. Uh, some questions were researched by two students, for example. And um, then we just sat together at one, uh, yeah, at one day, day for I think three to four hours, small workshop, um, discussed uh, the different aspects of the respective questions, and kind of you know narrowed it down, tried to come up with a with a common stance on the topic. And then the professor again um, put up a draft, um, put everything that we discussed on in the workshop together, and then we kind of worked over the course of three to four days on a draft uh, that he then finalized, and um, yeah, then he submitted it. So it was really a collaborative thing. So what kind of issues do you think were the most pressing that you outlined within the submission? Uh, good question. Um, <laughs> So just to give you context, so I was mainly dealing with the questions of energy efficiency and renewable energy. And Ireland, I think, is, is extremely behind its own uh, goals for energy, uh, renewable energy, for example. Uh, the EU's goals would be something around, uh, you have to check that again, but I think it was 32% um, for 2030, um, which I researched on that topic with a friend of mine, uh, with one colleague. and. Um, we just came up in the first second saying this is not sufficient at all, like any, not anywhere near. So it kind of reflects the stance that the government doesn't really realize what is at stake and what, what they kind of really have to do. Um, so I think, for example, reaching the, GHG, the, the greenhouse gas emission reduction is priority number one. The same goes for, of course, um, increasing renewable energy share um, and also Increasing energy efficiency, yes, but what we also said is that the government should kind of adapt a stance on or adapt the notion of um, sufficiency. So say how much is enough, not just about talk about energy efficiency itself. Because what the problem with energy efficiency is if you, for example, say we want the economy to grow and grow and grow more and more, you have, will have rebound effects. So the efficiency gain will be put off or offset by, um, yeah, by a growing economy, basically. 
So renewable energy, energy efficiency, in my opinion, are the most important ones, uh, combined with the notion of sufficiency, and also what we, uh, what was not really a question, or what not really response to one of the questions, but a more general stance was about um, introducing a second, uh, introducing a second, um, yeah, maybe benchmark. Um, so apart from GDP, gross domestic product which is really prevalent in all in all Western societies, we said that they should probably use the genuine progress indicator on top of that, just uh, so that they kind of um, analyze the progress that is being made and that will be made in the next 10, 12, 15 years um, better, because GDP not really necessarily reflects energy efficiency standards or renewable energy gains, but the genuine progress indicator does that because it kind of deducts the uh, harmful pollution from fossil fuel emission, for example, um, from, from GDP as well. So is uh, MSC in is climate change, policy, media and society? society yeah. yes. <laughs> are, they, are you undertaking any more kind of similar projects in this kind of... So you mean, uh, for example, um, asking or demanding public yeah. bodies? Uh, so far, not. Uh, we are we are pretty we are pretty um, pretty um, busy with with what we have to do in school. So the fact alone that we took time off for this NECP consultation, I think, for me, I can't speak for the course, but I think for everybody who got involved, it was just because this was a unique opportunity. And speaking for myself, I'm from Germany. Um, the fact that you have this opportunity at all and that you have a citizens assembly is extremely important and extremely valuable. So we we kind of said, okay, we have to take this. Um, but apart from that, there's there's nothing nothing else going on right now. Not to say that this can't change maybe in the next couple of months. So this kind of project was done outside of college time. And outside of college yeah. time, exactly. We are not being graded on that by any chance because, as our professor said, it's voluntarily. Yeah. Um, so while we, uh, I think it helped us also kind of to structure a lot of ideas in our heads, mm -hmm. but it was completely outside of the uh, curriculum. Yeah. And why do you think that this course is kind of different from any other? So most of the master's programs in climate change, um, and I've been looking at them for four or five years now, mm -hmm. um, they kind of either adopt a stance or a, a concentration on um, technical subjects, mm -hmm. so it's engineering masters, or they much more broadly focus on sustainable development. So there's lots and lots of sustainable development masters, um, and they also differ in what they are really specifying in. But this one is unique in terms of that it really says, okay, we're dealing only with the topic of climate change, mm -hmm. only meaning, of course, it affects almost everything. But it kind of approaches this also from a, from a let's say, yeah, societal perspective. Mm -hmm. So I have, I've been working in, well, I've worked before I came here for a small company which kind of dealt with renewable energy and energy efficiency, but it was always about the notion that you can solve the climate crisis by technological solutions mm -hmm. and by energy efficiency gains and all that stuff. And I and a lot of other people, I think, um, have the feeling that this is not sufficient at all. What we have to think about is what are the underlying power structures in our society, who influences politics and how. So for example, me, for me it's clear that um, business groups have much, uh, way too much, uh, way too much um, interest and way too much influence in policy decisions, which we will probably see with the NECP workshop in the reports. So this course really tries to kind of delve, or, um, yeah, delve into this, um, into these structures. So what the media, what, what does the media, what role does the media play? Um, what, how, and why do social institutions act how they act? And um, what can and cannot policy do as well in this context? 
think that Irish policy might be lacking in terms of how other European countries are dealing with the issue of climate change? I'd say they are lacking, just um, if you look at the progress that they've been making so far, it's really, really disappointing. Um, other countries are way, way more ahead, um, but um, for example, if you take Germany, we also have our problems, and I think that almost no country, and you might check that as well, I think only Sweden or some of the Nordic countries is kind of on track to reach the Paris Agreement goals, which are in itself, as some might say, not sufficient. Um, so yes, Ireland is lacking behind um, really, really heavily, but it's not alone, so um, yeah, not to blame Ireland, better to blame like everybody yeah. for this. <laughs> Yeah. I think that's everything I need for now. Thanks for uh, taking the time to... You're to welcome. So, Ireland are struggling to meet their carbon emission targets to keep the rising global temperature below 1.5%. We've seen, like, over the past that they have... They didn't introduce a carbon tax in the last budget. Our agriculture emissions are continuing to rise is there anything that the government have done? Is there any positives that we have seen? Well, currently they are trying to introduce a carbon emissions tax. And I, I read about this last week and they're actually facing a lot of disputes from Irish farmers associations and stuff who are kind of saying that they need to be taken into consideration with these taxes because they will be the industry kind of most affected by it. But I suppose that kind of brings up an issue with farming being one of the huge causes of um, climate change so there's I suppose the government are trying to find a balance between um, like appeasing the farmers but also kind of trying to curtail this problem at the moment and obviously agriculture accounts for the greatest percentage mm -hmm. of our exports but it's also responsible for a third of Irish gas emissions mm -hmm. and it's definitely a very difficult one like we can't afford to lose out on the income and the tax that we're getting yeah. from the agriculture exports but definitely there doesn't seem to have been any measures or incentives to encourage smart farming yes absolutely oh in the past we've seen like calf introduced we've seen policies introduced in farming it's probably the most place we've seen different initiatives mm -hmm. started and yet when it comes to this they've taken no action as well though did the government actually encourage the public to do things that will you know you know positively affect climate change like do you ever see i suppose maybe there there once was like public relations for you know well i suppose turning off your tap that that that's not climate change but there's nothing for like the, like have they ever said you know stop eating meat on a Monday or mm -hmm. you know meat free Mondays is a big thing but have the government actually actually contributed to that? One thing that I've noticed is that like it's said that up to 2 million homes in Ireland will need to be refurbished to become in any ways close to being zero carbon houses and the government have allocated money to work on this um, 22 billion is committed to climate measures um, in, in the National Development Plan over the coming decade up until 2030. But that means that 100,000 homes a year need to be refitted every year for the next 20 years. Now they've allocated this money for the National Development Plan, but 
there's no talk about it. Who is this money going to go to? Which houses are we going to target? Are they just going to build new houses? Do we have the space for that? They're, they've, they're allocating money with no strategy. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are a lot of ways that the government could stop this problem without kind of making new problems for themselves. Like As you say, they're, they don't really seem to have much of a plan with building or with refurbishing these houses but there are other other measures that could be taken that aren't so drastic as that but I think if it was done even in a grant scheme if it was kind of done that right for every change that you make to your house to make it more carbon friendly more eco-friendly that you get a certain subsidy Mm -hmm. so say you install solar panels well then you get x amount of money and you install a small wind turbine in the back garden, mm-hmm. you get X amount more. If they did it that way and used the money, allocated the money in that way, but I don't see how else they can kind of implement this, but mm-hmm. they, they haven't started at all. There have been no measures taken. Yeah. And just going back to as well, I mean, Aoife, you were talking about farming there and though, like how farming is, you know, one of the biggest factors like in bringing <coughs> money into Ireland um, like what what can be done I mean if people you know people are being encouraged not by the government but people are being encouraged you know you know start stop eating so much meat and stuff you know so we're not contributing to um, climate change but I mean they really do kind of they like they don't balance each other at all so what can be done I really don't know. I mean, a lot of vertical farms were created in countries, but that is a lot more to do with kind of horticulture. And obviously the meat industry is kind of where we're most prominent on. And it's methane gas that's being produced there. It's gas from the feces of the animals, basically.